really, I think regardless of where people stand on the decision that's been made by this government and other governments that lead us to be in this position on this day, regardless of people's point of view politically about whether or not this is the right decision, it remains a really awesome day. I can't remember a day uh, in my life where uh, where I knew that uh, a wholesale conflagration was going to happen at a certain time. Like there was an appointment for a war. Um, so various people have talked to me about it. So it feels like, uh, um, well, maybe some of the more wholesome uh, ways that people say, I feel like I feel as if you're going for some huge operation that might or might not be a success and from which you might or might not come out alive at the other end. Might be good for you, you don't know, but it has to happen. But some people have said that. Other people have said, I feel like I'm, you know, going towards an execution and there's, you know, there's, there's no way out. So you realize at this point. Some people have said, and this has no political flavor about it one way or another, they said, I feel like uh, skiers must feel after they've come out of the chute, you know, and they're uh, in the in the ski jump chute and already going. There's no way out from that. It kind of has a um, desperate feeling about it. It's an awesome day. I read this morning in the paper something about the history of wars, and um, until uh, until quite recently. Uh, war was very much a, 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 a spectator event. Certain people designated to be the combatants went to some place and fought, but by and large, people didn't. Uh, the, the, the rest of the populace stayed home, and terrible, grievous injuries happened to the direct combatants. And that, that's really changed with the advent of modern uh, munitions. There's not so many combatants who get hurt, but a lot of non-combatants get hurt. And how strange a shift that is that no one's remarked about. I wanted to talk about my particular my particular sense of how this become, how this remains really the central kind of spiritual issue for me, in addition to a, you know a, a political issue and one that I certainly have a view about and a stance about and um, an activist um, participation in. I keep saying to people, I don't know how many times in the last weeks, that I think of myself as an activist on behalf of peace. That peace and pacifism is not necessarily go together for me. And so apart from my political life, I talk about what I think is, at least for me, the, 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 the crucial inner path and very hard. And I thought yesterday about, I'll teach about not blaming and not finding fault and not being mad. And I'll teach about hatred never ending by hatred. You know, that's a line from the Dhammapada. Hatred is never ended by hatred. Only by love alone is hatred ended. And I thought to myself yesterday, I better get over it by tomorrow so that I can <laughs> teach from that point of view. But then I thought to myself, if I haven't gotten over to it, I'll, I'll cop to the fact that I haven't gotten over it. And, um, but, but I, I, I actually feel 
that when I am clearest, that that's what's going to be most helpful to me, when I cannot be mad. So I thought I would teach a little bit about the, the loop in the mind, I think, that assigns blame. That, because I think it's blame, that fire, blaming something other, that then fires up the kind of um, anger that uh, pulls the mind up out of despair and is a certain antidote to fear. There's a lot of talking about if only. If only a month ago this had happened, or if only a month ago this or that country, or this or that person, or this or that governmental body. And not only that, if only a month ago, but if only a year ago, or two years ago, or five years ago, or ten years ago, or fifty years ago, in fact, if only this or that had gone a different way. And of course, that's always true, that the rest of the future is written in every moment. And if only this moment didn't happen, hadn't happened, something down the road, which is the result of this, won't happen. But I was, I was thinking a lot about every time we say, if only, it's such a futile thing to say, because if only didn't happen. If, you know, just by nature of the if only, if only never happens. I mean, what happens, happens. And as soon as we are saying if only, it means that that didn't happen. Didn't happen. So if only is a futile exercise, because you don't know actually if only that would have happened, that this would be different now and in, in a better way. Because if only that would have happened in the way that I think it should have. I have no way of knowing that 10 other things which did happen, also needed not to happen. I don't know. The only thing I know ever, the only thing I think we ever know is here we are, and what now? I, I think I have told you, you know, the, the people who are here have probably heard me say many times that the most useful email for me in the abiding way after 9-11, at the end of that whole day, was the email that said, pray for the people who died, and pray for the people they left behind, and pray that your heart stays open. And the pray that your heart stays open remains for me the hardest challenge, not to blame and not to be mad. I've been thinking about it a lot. And I'm thinking that blaming, say, aha, this is the culprit, is probably genetically a useful mechanism that if we're in sudden jeopardy, you have to see who is harming us. So if we're in sudden physical jeopardy, say, where are those shots coming from? Or where is that alarm coming from? So that the body gets activated and we know how to strike back. Probably it's in our neurology to locate the source of the fear and then hide from it or strike back at it. It's probably in our neurology. And it's probably, from the point of view of survival, a good thing to have. After that, though, the blaming and assigning blame, haha, it's this or that or that or that that's responsible, probably has another kind of a psychological uh, value or psychological potential. I don't know if it, in the end it turns out to be such a value. Because if we can get angry at someone or something and make that one or that thing the villain, then we can get all mobilized and say, okay, I'm going to wipe that out or get rid of it or take care of it. And then instead of feeling desperate 
or very sad, you feel energized because you have named what needs to be taken care of and you say, okay, I see what the problem is, now I'm going to do it. So it saves the mind from the despair of feeling helpless. But what if there's another way, instead of assigning blame? The most poignant um, teaching I think I ever had about that was, oh, I I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe. I can't remember the year that the, uh, the state of California mandated for everyone who was a therapist in California to take a course in uh, recognizing child abuse. So that even if you never saw children in your personal practice, if somebody came and told you about something, you would know what to hear. Or if you noticed certain signs, you would know what to be looking for. So I went to take that course along with you know a whole room full of other therapists on a weekend day. And the um, therapist who uh, was a specialist in child abuse, who worked in an agency dealing with children that were abused, began her presentation with an, uh, a, a recitation, an explanation with slides even, of the various kinds of absolutely frightful abuses that parents do to children that you couldn't even imagine. Okay, neglect, okay, uh, hitting, uh, Okay, or well, not okay, but you could imagine them. But things that were diabolical that people had to think up to abuse their children, they were so awful. Couldn't imagine. And I sat there seriously wincing. I didn't want to look at the slides because they showed you these children who had been hurt in different ways. And I could feel around me the room, everybody tightening up. You know, nobody wants to look away, want to be able to look like you're paying attention to the course, but everybody was wishing it would be over. And that she'd get on to, what do you, what do, you do? Never mind, okay, I recognize already, but what do you do? And then at some point she said, when it becomes clear that we're going to have to take the child away from the parents, usually it's the mother who's brought it to the agency to come to the attention. Here's a mother with a child, often a baby. So when it's, going to be, when it's become clear that we're going to have to take away the child for it to protect it, she says, I say to the mother, um, I know that in your heart of hearts you really wanted to be a very good mother to this child, and I know that you wanted it to grow up well. And I know that this is a really hard time in your life, and that you're really struggling in your life, and this is a very hard time for you to be raising a baby, so I know that you can't do it. And we really want to help you do that. So we have a thing, we have program planned for you that's going to help you get your life together. And in the meantime, until you do that, we're going to need to take this child away and take care of it safely until you can do it. So let's go together now. You go with me. We're going to go down the hall and we're going to meet the workers in this agency who will set up your child with a foster family that will take good care of it till you're ready to take care of it. And we'll go together now, so come with me, and you can carry the baby, and you can take the child. And then she said, I walk down the hall with them, and I hold them. I have my hand around the parent, or I hold their hand. You see the people in the room are looking at each other as if to say, this woman is a saint. How do you keep that together? And somebody said, how do you do that? How do you not hate these parents for what they're doing? And she was so clear, she said, you know, 
Most of them have been abused by their parents. And most of them have substance addictions. And all of them, their lives aren't working. And they're overburdened. They have nothing looking ahead of them in their lives except a whole life of uh, emptiness. They're overwhelmed with a bleak future. They don't feel good. They're not making it in the world. And on top of that, they've got a crying baby. They can't do it. And so you can't really blame them. They can't do it another way. So I thought about that at the time. You know, sometimes later on in the, in the day, someone said to her, how do you keep yourself together? Okay, we've already figured out that this woman has managed to see this is what's true, but still, how do you stand it? She had the strangest response to how do you stand it. I'm appreciating it over the years. She said, I go home in my lunchtime. She said, I live not far from the agency. I take a long lunch, and I watch soap operas. <laughs> and I, 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 I've thought about it since then, because it seemed to me like the soap operas would be the worst thing. You know? She said, I took a long lunch and went home and listened to Mozart. Okay, I might figure it out. But I go home and I listen to soap operas. It's the same thing. But maybe... It, maybe I can even understand the soap operas now as I tell it to you. It, maybe it universalizes it, you know, in the, in, the, in the same way that we, maybe if you had some familiarity with the soap operas, might mock them about, you know, who could have a life like this full of incredible suffering. But maybe on the other hand, everybody's got a life full of incredible suffering. And if 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 we remember, you know, this is not a unique example. The world is full of pain. So I won't end it with what I do, but I'll contribute to the ending of it with what I do. Who knows how that meant to her. But what really struck with me these many years, in which I've been thinking about a lot these last days, is can anyone ever do it another way? And is there any use in blaming anyone ever? I think about, this is quite a part even from the world situation, because I don't know that we can do the world situation differently than we do the world that lives in our heart, of our particular family, our particular constellation of people. Think about uh, how in the last hundred years, with the advent of psychodynamic psychotherapy, thinking about our lives from a point of view of ego development and most of us could tell the story of our lives in terms of our particular upbringing. I think that's our culture. You know, if we lived in another culture, somebody said, why are you like how you are? You can, I, I might say, you know, I'm like how I am because I'm a Leo with Libra rising. If I lived in that kind of a culture, that, so, oh, well, that, of course, explains why this, that, and the other. Or, I'm a six on the Enneagram. Oh, well, you see, that really says, we you go back to three on your way to nine. I don't get that whole thing. But I had dinner with a friend of mine last night who said, well, of course you're responding this way. You're a six with a three there and a nine here. And I don't get it any better than when she said it last night, but it was clear as anything to her. And I admire her enormously. She's one of my spiritual directors. I, I, I put a lot of value in what she says. So good. I'm a six on the way to a three, but it doesn't matter. You know. So, but, but most of us, having grown up in a culture where we don't say the Enneagram and we don't say Leo with Libra rising, we say, well, you know, my mother was this and my father was that, and I'm an only child. And I was born at the end of the Depression. My father didn't have a job. Or 
however you want to tilt it, and then you can make a good story, but that's why I'm like this. Do you remember um, West Side Story? Remember the song, Dear Officer Krupke? I'm very upset. I never had the love that every child ought to get. And then on and on. And that's why I'm so bad, you know, because it is a way to set it up. And who knows if it you know, seems to me pretty true. Now, how do I know that it's not seems to me pretty true because I grew up in a culture that framed its understanding like that instead of Leo with Libra rising, or it's actually true and it's a very good insight. And maybe it's true and Leo with Libra rising is true and the Enneagram is also true. How do I know? And how do I know that I'm not the reincarnation of something or other, which would also be true? Not one or the other. But to be able to say, on account of that, I see things this way. And uh, not to use it as a justification, but as an explanation. can't be another way, or I can't do it another way. Like this particular worker should, uh, could say about parents who are terribly abusive, they couldn't do it another way, for whatever reason. Maybe it was their parents, maybe it's their substance addiction, Maybe they had those parents and the substance addiction. Maybe they have a different kind of um, genetic constitution that handles stress in a more complex way than might be valuable in terms of raising the next generation of people. Who knows? The question is, should we hold people responsible in the sense of, or, or should we blame them? I think to maybe... Uh, figure out responsibility and where and where responsibility is reasonably placed, and to be fairly firm—I mean, completely firm—this this worker in the social service agency did not have any problems about saying, if it's not going to be safe for the child, we take the child away. So it's not an excusing kind of an uh, understanding; it's a framework that says sometimes you need to intervene in a decisive way. I was thinking, though, about the, a whole generation more of people who grew up uh, with a framework of uh, psychology to explain their own discomforts. And the way sometimes I think, unfortunately, it ends up in a lifetime of blame about one's parents, often not long any more living in this life. And in fact, what I'm thinking about is, in fact, the parents might be responsible for one's own uncomfortable responses to life. But are they really guilty? They might be responsible, but are they guilty? Can we blame them? Or is it true that there's never anyone to get blamed? That it couldn't be done another way? Don't think that People who abuse their children get up in the morning and think, well, I could be really a wonderful, sweet parent today, but just for that, I'm going to really... I don't think that's a possibility. I think we all of us operate at the highest level that we can operate. There was a a psychologist, I don't know if he's still living, maybe you know, named John Enright. You know John Enright? Is he still living? I remember him decades ago when my children were young, so it was maybe 40 years ago. Him, my either hearing or going to a workshop with him, where he said, um, "You never made a wrong decision in your life. You always made the rightest decision that you could, given the information that you had." 
You always did the right thing, given the resources you had. And I thought to myself, really? I did, you know? <laughs> Even when I behaved badly, you know, did I do the, did the, with the resources I had, I did the best I could. I think to myself, well, how the world would be different if suddenly we could uh, forgive our parents for what they did. And really, fundamentally, I've been thinking this whole week that maybe forgiveness is going to come down to be the bottom line word. Not even loving kindness, but forgiveness. Because the inability to forgive is what stands in the way, I think, of us fundamentally cherishing, feeling kindly towards. I think it's an adaptive response to say, just to that, I'm so not forgiving of this or that person. I'll never forgive them as long as I live. And in that decisive moment, closing the mind to any other understanding and closing the heart to the possibility of peace, I don't know that we can hold out. And this is a very hard time not to blame or assign blame. I keep thinking about how hard it is in the world situation now. By the way, you know, there's one more thing about forgiving one's parents. Those of us who are um, old enough to have done our parenting already and see it even now visited unto the next generation. Um, in the forgiving of parents, I think it also involves the forgiving of oneself for one's own mistakes. You know? How many people here are parents? of grown children. How many people here who are parents of grown children would like to be able to completely forgive themselves for what mistakes they made? <laughs> I don't think that there's a way to do this life. I, it comes with the job. It absolutely comes with the job. The forgiving comes with the job, and the mistake making mistakes comes with the territory. I do not think it's possible to do it Completely, wonderfully, even with the best of intentions. If it were indeed, the world would be a different place. That with the best of intentions, I have been thinking a lot. This is about the words intention and impact over the last couple of months because I've been at a number of diversity training workshops. And that those are two key words that people use a lot. That a lot of where, where when people work out uh, misunderstandings that happen on the basis of communication misunderstandings, and say, well, I didn't mean that. I don't have that feeling in myself about this group or that group or you or her or him. I don't have that feeling. What I said was, and what I meant was, and I didn't intend that, but to learn what was the impact, never mind what you intended, what was the impact? And to be able to say, you know what? If that was the impact, I'm really sorry. Not to get stuck in it wasn't what my intention was. You know? It could have not been what our intention was. And there's no way to... Uh, the, 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 the only absolutely fail-safe position with that would be to say, since I can't know what the impact of my actions will be, I won't act. That's also an act. So it, I, I, I remember the very moment, actually, where I suddenly got it in some much more profound way than I had ever gotten it before, 
that absolutely everything we do has sequelae. And I got that. I think I was thinking about hearing an otapa, the moral shame and moral dread, that when you do something, you could hurt someone, and that that hurt would have ramifications forever and ever. You could cause pain. And I had this momentary thought, you know, you can't do anything. It was really like a paralyzing thought. No action. But I realized that that's a big action, that at any moment, not acting is an action. And there are lots of moments where an action is called for this particular worker in that social service agency needs to involve herself. You raise children, you need to involve yourself. We vote every four years. We vote in between that. Not voting counts as significantly as voting. How to not blame ourselves or anybody else? I've been feeling quite um, back and forth about helpless or empowered in the last couple of days. I really hope that what I said about the not blaming makes some sense to you. First of all, because I think it is so crucial in forgiving. I actually think nobody can be doing anything else than they're doing now. I like that line when that worker in that agency said, uh, we're going to help you get your life together and fix it up so that you'll be able to take care of your child. Keep thinking that educating people in whatever way we can, teaching peace, spreading peace, being peace, Holding out for that, that a peaceful way to live a life is a possibility and helping people who can't live in that way, all kinds of people, has got to be the way. I don't know that we can do anything else. Also, it's uh, a great relief. And it's a tremendous tendency, I see it in myself, to blame to call up my friends and despair with them and talk about who did the wrong thing when. I don't know in the long run whether that's valuable or not valuable. What do you think? Does it help you out? Momentarily, Betty says. What do you think? Help you out. What else? I had a very good time yesterday. In the middle of the day, I had a despairing morning, and just before noon, uh, my daughter called and said, um, the students at Marin Academy are having a march for peace at noon. You want to go march? So I went to march. The students at Marin Academy, one of the students at least, had his mother and his grandmother there. And... Uh, and I had a good time. I, you know that it was a beautiful sunny day in Marin. Um, here were uh, children, really, walking along. First of all, reasonably informed as I talked to them, singing the same slogans that I remember singing 20 years ago and 40 years ago. And, um, I thought to myself, 
I have two ways to go at this point. I could either feel despair, that we're back with the same slogans, I could say square one, or I could say absolutely not square one, that wonderful. This is just like when I come to Spirit Rocket to teach a retreat, and I find that there are three 20-year-olds in that retreat, or more now. I think to myself, well, good, we're not just old folks going to die out in one generation. Another generation of people who think their hearts can be converted to peace that are now growing up. That would be good. So it was nice to see another generation of people. It was lovely to see the police so pleasant with them. You know, I, I talked to the police on motorcycles before they started out. They had a whole bunch of police there. I didn't talk politics. I talked about uh, philosophies. I said, you know, it's great that that you're all here doing this and uh, that we all live in a country still where anybody can go outside and uh, be protected by the police in their attempt to say what it is that they believe in. Never mind what it is that they believe in, that we live in a country still where you can go out and get police protection to say what's on your mind. But that was, I thought, the, the best civics lesson for these particular young people. I thought, well, that's all right. And in the middle of doing that, I, th- I, I realized that the despair that I had felt all morning, I didn't feel. That uh, one of the things that is so frightening about despair is that it feels so solid, doesn't it? Then all of a sudden, you're out with a bunch of young people who feel hopeful and say, you know, in this minute, I feel all right. Hillary, what? All the high schools left wherever they were at about 12 o'clock yesterday. And uh, Drake were, walked out. They, they walked down to the library in San Rafael so that the, the people at Sir Francis Drake High School had a long walk. And uh, the Redwood folks came in buses and the San Rafael folks walked over. Um, there's a, I, I'm very happy that Charles had that feeling. I also thought I'd cry. And it's just really... Love it. Like, I, when I look out at you this morning, and I think we have a little bit more people here than we normally have. I figure because everybody wanted to be here today. You know, it's just, David, what? Um, I think I can go along with And um, You have to know this is David's reading from prophets that is 50 years old now. (laughs) 
Was it at least from Isaiah? <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much, David, because now this gets me to think about how I would like to do the next few minutes. I have been, the two things that I wanted to talk about this morning was um, were uh, about not blaming if I can avoid it because I realize it's not good for my it's not it's it's not good for me to blame it it uh, um, that fifth precept of uh, not doing intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness that blaming is one of those intoxicants that uh, if I do it enough. It clouds the mind and leads to heedlessness. It does not clear my mind. It whips it up. Uh, I, I just feel myself getting angry and someone will come and call me up and say, can you believe this? I just heard that. Ah. Does that happen to you? It does not happen to you? It's so easy to get mad. And we're all frightened. Uh, I am frightened. So I don't want to make myself more frightened. Because the truth is I don't know. One of my extremely... Uh, self-catching moments in the last couple of days is when I realized suddenly that I'm, I'm actually worried that I, I, I worried that I might be wrong and I'm so sure about my convictions about what way this should be unfolding and I'm so sure about what's the right way and the wrong way I thought to myself I could be wrong and I'm worried that I'm right and I'm worried that I'm wrong, both ways. Because the truth is, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I have had absolutely, as my great spiritual practice, most of you know, I do not listen to the television, and I don't generally listen to the radio. But I, the New York Times comes every morning, I read it all, I read those people with whom I disagree, I know they don't print all the news, I read the online newspapers that my friends keep sending me inflammatory excerpts from. Uh, I, I, my cousin in New York, bless his heart, sends me every day five emails from the direction that I absolutely don't believe politically in order to balance any wrong-mindedness on, that he imagines that I have, which I have. So, uh, so I, I'm pretty informed. And to, uh, and to have suddenly the, the thought the other day, actually, I hope I'm wrong. You know, maybe this is the right thing to do. I don't know. In the meantime, not to make enemies in my heart and not to have a war happening in me. The war happening out there, I don't want to have it happening in me. And I do not want to wish ill on anyone. I don't think it would do the world any good. And that is the hardest thing to, for me to keep as my really serious central practice. How not to wish retribution um, on anybody. Just for that, I hope that it's not a helpful way to think. So what I was thinking about yesterday, and partly it came because I, uh, I went on that peace march and I saw these young folks and it lifted up my heart. The other part happened because I've been listening to uh, 
uh, one of those teaching courses on tape on the history of jazz and ragtime and how ragtime became uh, how ragtime became jazz and what came before ragtime and it's a great course and I just ride along in my car and I listen to that on sort of one of those books on tape courses and I and so I realized that music picks up my heart. It does not solve the problem for me, but it keeps my mind from getting caught. And I realize that one of the things that, that is the part of the mind that, that, that makes insight, makes uh, appreciation of, um, of beauty and of artistry and creativity, and um, that the whole same part of the mind that has the insight, peace would be possible, human beings could do this, is the part that... Um, writes great music. I was serious when I said if I had a two-hour lunch hour, I'd go home and listen to Mozart, not the soaps, but you know, that there's something about it. So I thought it would be valuable, most valuable, more valuable than hearing me, if everybody now looked at somebody, find somebody that, that is not your intimate, that you don't know, and get one partner, two if you can't get one, but get a partner. Ready, set, go, pick a partner. Anyone. It's a five-minute exercise. Have a partner. Wait a minute. You don't know what you're supposed to do yet with the person. You need a partner. Who needs a partner? Who's got a partner? You got a partner? Oh, now you got one. Okay. There you go. Everybody's got a partner. Okay, first of all, tell your partner your name. It's not important, but... Okay. Okay. Here's what I would like you to do. This is like a, uh, uh, a helpful hints workshop. I'd like you to sit... For, uh, when I ring this bell... Seriously, I gave you two hints. I said Mozart is a big help to me. The history of the jazz movement in America is a big help. So, uh, music. Uh, soap operas, the other person said. Um, uh, wait, wait. Uh, looking at young people. Looking at young people hopeful is a help to me. I can think of six more things that I would say to people if I were in a dyad. I'd like you to just make a list. When I, I'm going to ring the bell, and then it's going to be quiet for one minute, no talking. Then I'll ring the bell again, and one person will say three things, and uh, or six things. I'll ring the bell at the end of two minutes of that person talking. The other person will add to it, and then I'll ring the bell again, and I'll give you the next instruction. Everybody got it? Okay, ready? Okay, I'll remind you. <laughs> I'm ringing the bell, and it's quiet for one minute, okay? That one instruction. one And you're thinking about what what is the help for you? What supports your heart when it falls down, Okay. That's what you're thinking about for this one minute. Ready, set, think. Meditate. That <laughs> elevates it. Meditate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.